As Pastor Dan said, I'm going to be sharing some of my own story with you today. And so I want to be clear up front that this is my story. I don't want to suggest that this story can be neatly mapped onto the experience of every other person who finds themselves gay or attracted to the same sex and desiring to follow Jesus. Um, one of my favorite authors uh, is the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And by the way, if you haven't read any Adichie, do yourself and humanity a favor and read some Adichie because she is terrific. But she has this to say about the single story. She says, the single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they're untrue, but that they're incomplete uh, because they take one story and make it the only story. Uh, so, so my hope is not that you would hear my story as the only story that can be given on this subject. Uh, rather, my hope is that what I share this morning might spark some ideas for all of us about what it could look like to follow Jesus, uh, regardless of where we find ourselves on the spectrum of human sexuality, and also regardless of what we believe Scripture has to say about sexual ethics. Um, now, uh, some of you may be like, well... Uh, it sounds like you're going to talk about an experience of uh, being attracted to the same sex. You're going to talk about being gay, and I'm not gay, so I don't know what this could possibly have to do with me. And if you're thinking that, don't worry, I've thought of you too. Um, which is why I'll punctuate our conversation this morning with a couple moments that I like to call straight people applications. Um, and so if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know, he's talking about being gay, he's still talking about being gay, like, don't worry, because your straight people applications are coming. Uh, but in the end, in the end, the straight people applications, it's a little facetious, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because really the thing I want to propose to you this morning is that there's actually no such thing as straight people applications and gay people applications, that actually in the end, the gospel turns out to be remarkably the same good news for all of us. Because I think in the end, as we approach Jesus, we're all fundamentally asking the same three questions. Is Jesus really who he says he is? What would it cost me to follow him? And is it going to be worth it? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Was there actually this first century guy who showed up claiming to be the son of God, the savior of the world? Did he really die? Most importantly, was he really raised from the dead? And if so, if I believe that that's true and I decide that I want to become his disciple, what is it going to cost me? What might I need to give up in order to live like a disciple of Jesus? And if I give that up, what do I receive in return? Is it going to be worth it to live like a disciple of Jesus? So I want to propose to you this morning that those are perhaps the right questions for all of us to be asking. Again, regardless of where we land on the spectrum of human sexuality, regardless of what we believe Scripture teaches about some of these questions, I think asking those questions is a good place for all of us to begin. So with that preamble, I want to start my story for you today in puberty which is a terrible time to begin any story. Now, here's what happened to me in puberty. I grew up in the church, which means that I grew up going to youth group. And sometimes in youth group, they would split the boys and the girls up, and this invariably meant that we were going to talk about sex. I remember at this stage of my life, I thought that all the girls were like freakishly tall and wore a lot of eyeshadow. And so they would, they would get all the eyeshadow-wearing girls, and they'd send them off to one room, and then they'd get the boys together, and they'd be like, look, boys. We know what you're all going through. You want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it. And I was like, gotcha, no looking at pictures of naked women. And I discovered that I was remarkably good at not looking at pictures of naked women. 
I was like so good at it that I started to believe that I was like the holiest 12-year-old in the world. Because they kept being like, every young man is going through this. And I was like, I'm not going through it. I think I've been spared because I just love Jesus so much. Um, it took me a little while uh, to realize that I did, in fact, have an experience of sexuality. It just wasn't the one that I had been sort of trained and braced to expect. And very quickly, I went from feeling like the holiest 12-year-old in the world to feeling like the worst possible 12-year-old in the world, the one who was so bad that nobody had bothered to warn me that somebody like me could exist. There were two narratives that I knew of uh, in Christian spaces for somebody who was in my shoes, somebody who was attracted to the same sex and wanted to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, there was the, the ex-gay narrative and the, and the gay affirming narrative. Now, the ex-gay narrative was the one that was more common in my community by far, and this was the story that said, look, if you find out that you're gay, uh, what you need to do is figure out what has gone wrong in your upbringing to make you gay. And they had these explanations like, oh, if you're gay, it's because you had a distant father and an overbearing mother, and that created some childhood trauma in you, and that's what made you attracted to the same sex. Now, I wish you could meet my parents because they're delightful. Um, but you can't meet my parents this morning, so you're just going to have to take my word for it that my parents are delightful. My father, not at all distant. My mother, not at all overbearing. Anyway, these explanations of what was supposed to have made me gay didn't quite seem to fit my life. Um, but they also said, you know, if you're gay, you just, you just need to pray and, and trust Jesus. And then over time, you will become straight. And then you too can marry a woman, have 2.3 children, and live happily ever after. And I thought... Well, prayer was already on the agenda, right? Loving Jesus, I was already planning on. So I'll go ahead, I'll go ahead and wait for that to happen. Uh, and so this was, the, this was the story that I tried to live into through middle school and high school and college. I dated a very nice young lady in college, which accomplished very little other than breaking both of our hearts. Um, but during this season of my life, I tried to measure the state of my spiritual life on the basis of how straight I felt at any given time which led me to do some really bizarre things along the way. For example, and this, by the way, is not a recommendation, not like a how-to for those of you taking notes about, like, how could I do it? Um, but cut me a break, because I was like 13 at the time. I remember that once I ran across a picture of a scantily clad woman somewhere, I think it was like a bathing suit ad or something, and I was like, you know, I've been told that if I love Jesus, I would be straight. And I've also been told that if I were straight and I saw a picture like this, like I would feel things about it. Like I would want to lust after this picture. So I took the picture and I was like, I'm going for it. Just trying to conjure up some sense of something. I didn't even know what I was doing. And for all the good it did, I might as well have been staring at like an office supplies poster. But it was so deeply ingrained within me, this logic that if I were going to be a follower of Jesus, this was what needed to happen in my life. And eventually, I, I reached a, a, a kind of point of crisis where I realized, you know, I, I am in fact falling more deeply in love with Jesus. I am in fact growing in my faith. And yet those things are not making me more attracted to women. Those things are not making me less attracted to men. And so I really began to wrestle with the question of whether this narrative that I had inherited, this ex-gay narrative, whether that was really true, whether that was really the way that Jesus intended to work in my life. Uh, and as I began to doubt that, 
I began to sort of doubt everything else that I, that I thought I had inherited. And I was like, I don't even know what I believe. We should start from scratch again. Does God exist? Um, you'll be pleased to hear, for those of you who are on edge about this, you'll be pleased to hear that I did, in fact, conclude that God exists. This may be a relief for Pastor Daniel to hear at this exact moment in time. Um, but I, I began to wrestle with the question of this other narrative that I had heard, right? This, this gay marriage affirming narrative. And this was the story that said, hey, if you find that you're attracted to the same sex, you just need to revisit the parts of Scripture that seem to talk about same-sex sexual activity. Um, and then when you revisit those things, you'll conclude that they're not really trying to uh, prohibit a loving, monogamous same-sex marriage. And then instead of marrying a woman and having 2.3 children and living happily ever after, you can have that whole same story, just sub out the person of the opposite sex for a person of the same sex, and you're good to go. Uh, and I was like, well, let's, let's check that out. And, and so, I, so I, I went back to Scripture and I said, you know, I'm going to need to see for myself whether this book actually says the thing that I've been told that it says. I can't just take somebody else's word for it anymore. I need to see what Scripture really says, and I need to be bold enough to consider the possibility that I might have been wrong in the past. And this, for those of you who've been wondering when it's coming, is straight people application number one, uh, which is that it's a really good and beautiful thing to trust Scripture enough to let it prove you wrong. To say in the moment of crisis, I'm not just going to assume I've always been right on this subject. I'm actually willing to go back to the Bible and believe that Scripture has enough authority in my life to prove me wrong. But also, if I really believe that Scripture is God's Word spoken authoritatively over my life, I need to give Scripture permission to tell me things that I don't want to hear. Now, uh, I won't go into tremendous detail at this moment uh, about all the things that I found in my investigation of Scripture, though I would be delighted to delve deeply with you into them in the Q&A or later in the hallway. If you want to get all geeky about the biblical Greek with me, I am so ready for it. Let's do it. Um, but here in brief are a couple things that I found as I was doing this investigation. Uh, the first was that, to my great surprise, there was no scriptural promise that I would be straight. Which was weird to me, because I was so ready for it to be in there somewhere, right? I was so sure that there was a verse that said, like, then shalt thou experience the sexual attraction only for the opposite sex and never the same sex, somewhere in the book of Second Hesitations. I could have sworn that it was in there, and it, it just wasn't. Uh, there, there was no biblical promise that I would be straight. There was no biblical promise that I would get married. There wasn't even, shockingly, a biblical promise that I would ever have sex. Um, and a little sidebar here, uh, for, for those of you wondering, like, so, so what precisely does Scripture say about uh, the experience of sexual orientation or sexual attraction? Um, and the answer is, not a ton. But to give you that answer, I need to help you delineate between a couple very different kinds of things. Um, so I want us to differentiate between same-sex orientation, uh, uh, same-sex attraction, sexual uh, lust, uh, mental behavior, and then physical sexual behavior. Okay, so let's, let's walk down the line here. So, so over here on this end, I won't move too far. I hear the camera's kind of over here. But over on this side, um, We've got, we've got a general experience. When I say sexual orientation, I mean a general pattern of attraction over time. Um, 
So when I tell you that I am gay, uh, or which I use as a synonym for attracted to the same sex, whether you like that language or not, again, we can talk about it in the Q&A if you want. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not ready to like die on this particular hill, but it's an interesting conversation. Uh, when I say that I'm gay, what I mean is that I have a general pattern of experience over time that if I'm going to be attracted to somebody, it will be a person of the same sex. Now, this doesn't mean that at any given moment I am experiencing a same-sex attraction. Because, for example, right now there are lots of men in the room. You're all very handsome. Congratulations. But I am not experiencing same-sex attraction toward any of you. It's, it's not me. It's you. Um, right? So we have this general pattern of orientation, and then we have specific moments of sexual attraction, which could be an occasion for temptation. Uh, and we know from Scripture uh, that temptation itself is not a sin, right? We read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus himself was tempted in every way just as we are, and yet without sin. So, so to experience attraction or temptation is not a sin. Certainly to have a general pattern of orientation over time is not a sin. But when we start to talk about uh, lust, the, the behavior of the mind, or uh, sexual behavior, the behavior of the body, that's where we get into the conversation about uh, sin. Uh, and, and again, uh, we'll, we'll get to that momentarily. Um, but but these, were, these were some of my earlier discoveries. Wait, I thought the Bible had this huge conversation about how following Jesus was going to make me straight, and it didn't. Uh, here was the second thing that I found as I investigated Scripture. I found that when it came to this specific question of same-sex sexual ethics, what somebody in my shoes was called to do I found that that conversation was complicated. That it was a lot more complicated than some of the well-meaning people in my life had made it seem when they just said, look, Coles, you flip open your Bible in the English translation, you find the word homosexual in there somewhere, it's bad. Case closed, moving on to something more pressing like the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Um, I found that the question was actually complicated. Uh, and I won't, again, I won't lean super deeply into the complexity here, but I'll give you just one brief little example because biblical Greek is always fun. Um, there, are these, there are these two verses, two of the three places in the New Testament that seem to mention same-sex sexual activity uh, come in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, and, and both of these uh, passages use the Greek word arsenokoitai. Now, arsenokoitai is a compound word, which means it's formed from two other Greek words, and these Greek words are arsene, which means male, and koiti, which means bed. Um, now, here's the interesting thing about the word arsenokoitai. The two times that the Apostle Paul uses them in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy are actually the first two times we see that word appear anywhere in the entire corpus of Greek writing. Um, and so because there are no handy dictionaries of ancient Greek that were just lying around in 300 BC, whenever we want to figure out what a word means, we're always trying to look at previous uses of the word to say, okay, in context, what is this word saying? And we don't have previous uses of the word arsenokoitai to figure out what it means. Now, you could say, oh, it's easy. It's just a compound word. You take the two parts, you know, you've got your man, you've got your bed, man bedding. Clearly, that's a reference to same-sex sexual activity. You could do that. But imagine if we did that with English words, right? Imagine if I were like, butterfly. You got your butter, you got your fly. It's like a winged dairy product. Um, so so we, need to be, we need to be cautious um, uh, and, and recognize that there is complexity in the conversation that we're having. So, so I found this complexity, and I found myself deeply, viscerally sympathetic to people who came to the conclusion that God 
did want to bless them in pursuing a same-sex sexual relationship. Um, And yet, the third thing that I discovered as I investigated Scripture was that even though the conversation was complicated, there still seemed to be a best answer to the question of sexual ethics. There still seemed to be a truth that deserved to be pursued. And when I pursued that truth, I found myself reaching the answer that I feared rather than the answer that I wanted. Uh, And and this was the answer that said that that somebody who was in my shoes, somebody who was exclusively attracted to the same sex, um, that I still had the same options before me as all followers of Jesus, which were marriage, which I understood scripturally to be between male and female, or singleness. And so because I didn't particularly find myself drawn to marriage, and it seemed a bit unfair to say to a woman, hey, do you want to get married? I'm not attracted to you and probably never will be. That seemed a bit mean. I was like, I guess I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. And when I reached that conclusion, it seemed remarkably unfair to me. And I want to I read for you a, a snippet of uh, my, my book. Uh, so I wrote a book on this subject, which is a really fun thing to do when you're not out. Um, I, I had not shared this story with pretty much anybody. There were like six people in my life I was out to, and then I accidentally wrote a book. Um, not highly recommended. Again, if you're looking for tips on coming out, I don't recommend this one. Um, but I wrote a book, and I came out with the book. Uh, I posted the pre-order link on Amazon and wrote, Dear friends, I'm delighted to announce that I have a book coming out. Also, some other things that you should know. Um, I want to read for you a section of that book where I wrestle with this question of unfairness. Obedience was supposed to be costly. When Jesus told his followers to take up their crosses and follow him, he wasn't just calling them to place heftier checks in the offering plate or to put up with the occasional irritation at work. He was calling them to blood and sorrow and unspeakable agony. He was calling them to death. In many parts of the world, this calling to death is still very much a literal one for those who declare their allegiance to Christ. And if not death, perhaps the risk of beatings, of deprivation, of complete ostracization from family and community. But in the Western world, lulled by freedom of religion and unprecedented wealth, it's easy to lose sight of what words like suffering really mean. We begin to believe that ease and safety are the baseline experiences of humanity, the natural states of being from which every other state diverges. And suffering, when it comes, feels like a violation. Suffering shocks us. I'll follow you, we say to Christ so readily, watching the thorns dig into his forehead. And then, moments later, we cry foul when we discover thorns of our own. Maybe the problem isn't that gay Christians have received an impossible task. Maybe the problem is that so many straight Christians have given themselves a task that is too easy, a cross too bearable. While gay Christians are expected to deny themselves in their desires for sex and family and intimacy, desires that feel so intrinsically part of their being. Most straight Christians can simply channel those desires toward a single woman or man, get married, have kids, join a country club, attend a welcoming church where everything has been designed with people like them in mind, and chase the Jesus-festooned brand of the American dream. 
Now, I don't mean to belittle the self-denial necessary to a God-honoring, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Remaining faithful to a single partner is no small feat, or so I'm told. And certainly, some straight Christians who desire marriage may yet find themselves called to celibacy. Regardless of orientation, regardless of marital status, Christ's invitation to the cross remains no less true and no less necessary. But the road of celibacy for the gay Christian remains a distinctly complex calling to not only resist sexual urges, but to try to banish the thought of ever fulfilling them, to have no daydreams of a future romance, no wistful marriage plans, to feel like the very core of your sexual desire and the faith you hold most dear are at odds with each other. There are sufferings far worse than this, but there is none quite the same. My heart has its own fracture lines, its own unique ways of breaking. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe the calling to gay Christian celibacy stands in 21st century America as a precious reminder of just how desperately, helplessly devoted we were meant to be to the cross of Christ. A reminder that every sacrifice we make will pale in comparison to the sacrifice made on our behalf. Maybe the problem isn't that faith costs some of us too much, but that it costs all of us too little. And this, for those of you keeping score, is straight people application number two, which is that if following Jesus doesn't cost you something, you might need to reconsider whether it's actually Jesus that you're following. And certainly this is not to say that you should all be celibate, because Lord knows some of you ought to be fruitful and multiply. But it is to say that if somebody who doesn't know Jesus can look at every aspect of your life and make perfect sense of it, if they can look at the ways that you spend your time and the ways that you spend your money and the risks that you take and the risks that you would never take and the people that you love and the people that you would prefer not to, if somebody who doesn't know Jesus can make perfect sense of all of those things without knowing who Jesus is, then it may be that Jesus doesn't actually have as much influence over your life as you thought he did. But if all of this sounds dreadfully depressing, I don't want us to end there because I'm a big fan of the word delightful. I am such a big fan of the word delightful that uh, it, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of a thing that I became known for at my, at my previous church uh, in central Pennsylvania. Uh, one time I, I set up a, a meeting with the pastor of that church, and instead of writing my name in the calendar, he just wrote, delightful meeting. And then, and then his secretary saw his calendar and was like, oh, delightful meeting. I see you have a meeting with Greg. That's nice. So it was like a thing that people, people knew me by this word. Um, and in that delightful meeting with Aaron, I, I came out to him and I told him the substance of, you know, much of what I've just shared with you in the last 25 minutes. And Aaron said, you know, Greg, you're saying all this with a smile, which makes sense because you're, you know, delightful. But he was like, what you're saying sounds really difficult. And so I'm wondering whether you're actually as happy as you seem or whether you're just good at letting people see what you think they need to see or what you want them to see. And I told him, you know, Aaron, I am happy, and it is a very complicated kind of happy. I'm happy, and there are things about my life that are distinctly difficult and, and sorrowful, and yet those things do not diminish 
the happiness that I find in pursuit of Jesus. If anything, knowing that that costliness exists makes the joy of following Jesus that much more robust, that much more real. Friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that the thing that you and I are called to as followers of Jesus is a very complicated kind of happy. One of my favorite moments in Scripture, it's so good that it is in all three of the synoptic Gospels, which is a fancy name for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, If you ever want to impress a friend with a party trick, be like, hey, have you heard about the synoptic Gospels? Clearly, none of you go to the same parties as I do. Very nerdy parties. Um, uh, but, But there's this passage. It's in all three of the synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10 and in Luke 18. And it's this moment where Peter has said to Jesus, uh, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And so I just want to know if, if there's going to be something for us. We've given this stuff up. What, what, what is going to be there for us in return? And I love the way that Jesus responds to Peter. He says, truly I tell you, No one who has left home or fathers or mothers or sisters or brothers or wives or children or fields for my sake and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this life. Homes, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, wives, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And I love the way that Jesus responds to Peter because he doesn't, he doesn't deny that something is given up in being his follower. He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, you idiot, you didn't give up a thing, now quit whining and go stand over by Thaddeus. Um, Jesus acknowledges that there is this loss, there is something given up, and yet what he promises us is something so much better, a hundredfold the very things we thought we had lost in order to be his disciple. And he doesn't just promise it in the future. He doesn't just say, live through your miserable human existence and then you will die and then in heaven things will be better. But he makes a testable promise. He says, in this life, you will receive a hundredfold the very same things you thought that you had given up. There's this weird invitation into Jesus in which we are told that counterintuitively, the best way to flourish, the best way to find joy and hope, the best way to find belonging and family in the world is not by doing the things that we think will get us there. But the best way to joy and hope and belonging is found through giving up everything that we thought that we needed and discovering that on the other side of that death, there's something so much better Jesus has for us than anything we could have possibly dreamed up for ourselves. And this, friends, is straight people application number three. Because Lord knows gay people are not the only people who need that reminder that our best flourishing often doesn't come through the avenues that we think will bring us there. Our best flourishing is found in following Jesus into death and then discovering resurrection on the other side of that death. And I'm not going to pretend this morning that I know what that journey will look like for you. Because I don't know where you fall on a whole host of questions. I don't know what the experiences of your life have been like. But I believe that if the Jesus you know is the same Jesus that I know, he wants to invite you into both that death and that resurrection. And so what I want us to do as we bring our service toward a close this morning is to take 
a little time um, for you to reflect on those questions. I don't know if this is something you do regularly at this church, but I can get away with it because I'm from out of town. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it next week. But we're just going to take a little time um, to reflect on those same three questions that I brought up uh, at, at the beginning of our conversation this morning. Is Jesus who he says he is? And if he is, what might it cost me to follow him? Is there some invitation that Jesus wants to make in my life, in your life this morning to dare to dream of a kind of costliness that we hadn't believed was possible because we'd gotten in the habit of saying to Jesus, you may have lordship over approximately this much of my life, but no more. Is there a place where Jesus is asking you, hey, that other thing, the thing that you're still holding on to because you don't believe that you could possibly have a good or beautiful life if you let it go? Is there something that Jesus is inviting you to consider letting go this morning? And then as you reflect on the question, is it going to be worth it? Is there, as you let go of those things that you're clinging to, is there something that Jesus wants to remind you of this morning, that his promises are good, his promises are true, that his promises are worth believing in your life? So I just want to ask you, if you would, to take a moment and close your eyes, unless you hate closing your eyes, in which case I won't force it upon you, but take a moment in the silence and the peace of this moment to invite the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart. Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Jesus, are there ways that you want to reveal afresh in our hearts that you are indeed who you say that you are? Jesus, are there ways that you want to invite us to consider the costliness of being your disciple? Is there a kind of cost that you want to ask us to consider giving up, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time? And Jesus, is there a promise that you want to reaffirm in our hearts of just how worth it it is to follow you, of just how beautiful the invitation into your heart really is? Would you speak that into our hearts this morning, Holy Spirit? Father God, we thank you for the radical invitation of the gospel. We thank you that our invitation to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him, is an invitation both to death and to resurrection. That you don't invite us into a kind of resurrection that bypasses death, but you also don't invite us into a death that will not be followed by resurrection. And so we ask this morning that you would give courage to each heart here to dare to consider what death to ourselves might look like as we invite 
the resurrection of Jesus to do a work in our hearts, in our lives, that is so much better than anything that we could have dreamed, so much better than anything that we could have planned for ourselves. We ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would begin that work in us, that you would continue that work in us, that you would carry that work to completion in us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus.